Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Yes, my children still hold it against me that I made them watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang so many times growing up. I did tell them at one time that the first grandchild, granddaughter, who was named Truly Scrumptious, got all the inheritance. (laughs) Unfortunately, they then figured out that I had no inheritance, so... We are working our way through the book of Matthew. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the coming king, the fulfillment of the prophecies, the promises given to Abraham and to David. We talked about uh, the wise men coming to him, demonstrating his kingship. We talked about Herod. We talked about John the Baptist preparing the way. We talked about Jesus going into the wilderness and being tempted. And last week's lesson, Jesus uh, began to preach. He was preaching the same message that John the Baptist had, which was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus kind of moved north and took over preaching. He was beginning to draw large crowds because of his teaching, because of his miracles. It said they were bringing people from all over the countryside and he was healing them. He was also beginning to collect his disciples. So far, we have at least four that have been named that he has with him. Uh, Eventually, we'll get the rest of them. And he gets all of these people and he takes them onto the hillside and he sits them down and he's going to teach them. And what starts in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew and continues into chapters 6 and 7 is what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Augustine actually gave it that name. It's kind of stuck. And we're going to spend a few weeks more than a few weeks, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. The book of Matthew is actually kind of interesting because of the way it is structured. We have a few chapters of teaching, then we have story. Then we have a few more chapters of teaching, and then we have story. And there's five of these teaching sections in the book of Matthew. This one is the longest one. In fact, this one is the longest recorded sermon that we have from the mouth of Jesus Christ. So it would behoove us, since this really is Jesus speaking to the crowds, it would behoove us to take the time to understand what he was saying and why he was saying it. And that's what we're going to do in the upcoming weeks. If you remember, last week we ended by reading chapter 5 in its entirety. I would love to have sat down and read the entire thing because we have this, I have this tendency to not recognize that it was delivered as a sermon. Okay? It wasn't say a verse, talk about it for a while. Say a verse, talk about it for a while. It was delivered as a complete sermon. I commented about this when I was in high school and we would study Shakespeare plays, okay? We never just went through a Shakespeare play. You know, you would take it, a piece of it, a scene, and you tear it apart. And I got to the end of Hamlet, I had no idea what was going on. Because we just torn the thing apart so often. Oh well. 
We have a tendency of doing that with certain passages of the, of the Scripture. In fact, we're going to do that with the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we read chapter 5 in its entirety last week. And that's why today we're going to jump to the end before we get back to the beginning because we want to know the end of where we're supposed to go with all of this. I think I've told you on numerous occasions that the Sermon on the Mount is my favorite passage in the entire scripture, so get used to it. We have a few introductory comments that we have to get out of the way before we start the Sermon on the Mount. Number one is, who is he talking to? If you remember, we read the first couple of verses last week, and it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the vision that I have of this is Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd. Is he teaching the disciples, or is he teaching the crowd while just letting other people listen. I also think in my vision, and we'll talk about this a little later, that there's the disciples, there's the crowd, and on the periphery there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees sitting there trying to figure out, should we kill him now or should we kill him later? I mean, is he a threat to us? What is he teaching? Why is he teaching it? So the number one question that we have to answer is, is he talking to you today in the Sermon on the Mount? And there's lots of different possible answers to this question. There are those who believe that he is talking only to the Jewish community. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah come to fulfill all the promises that he had given to the Jews, that God had given to the Jews throughout the Old Testament. So this theory is that Jesus is preaching to the Jewish community, giving them one more chance to acknowledge that he is the Messiah, to rise up and he'll go sit on the throne of David and everything will work out great. And they muffed it. They had their chance, and they messed it up. That's a possibility. Hmm. Answer number two. He is talking about a lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven. Well, you may not have noticed, but we're not in heaven yet. So what he's really talking about, according to this view is what life will look like in heaven, but we certainly can't be expected to live this life here. I mean, we saw that in the last verse that we read last week. Remember the last verse of the chapter? Be ye perfect. Okay? Show of hands, how many of you are perfect? Well... Okay, when I get to heaven, I'll be perfect. So this is obviously talking about the lifestyle that we will be living when we get to heaven. The problem with that idea is that he's going to talk about persecution. And to the best of my knowledge, we're not going to be persecuted in heaven. He's going to be talking about struggling with temptation. 
And you know what? I think when we get to heaven, that last vestige of our sin nature will be removed and we won't be struggling with temptation. So it doesn't seem to fit as a lifestyle for heaven if it's dealing with problems that we see today. Another answer. Yes, it is for some group of believers. I mean, the really good ones. There was actually some idea that this was more in keeping with, say, what a priest, a Catholic priest or a spiritual leader would be expected to follow. It is not something that should be expected of the average believer. I mean, let's face it, it's just too hard. I mean, be ye perfect? Hmm, can't cut that. So, yes, it is something for believers, but only for a select group of believers. Let's say the pastor has to do it. The rest of us are off the hook. But then there's another choice. And that is that it is the lifestyle of the kingdom. And you and I, having been saved by grace, having been brought into the kingdom, are expected, however imperfectly, to live the lifestyle of the kingdom in preparation for being in the kingdom. It is interesting, there are lots of images in the Bible about things that are and things that will be. We are saved, but we are being saved by the fact that we are being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. So we are saved, yet we are being saved, and someday we will be saved when we are glorified in heaven. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount, no matter how difficult and unbelievable it may appear to us, is the lifestyle that God, that Christ, is calling us to live. I mean, just look at this, you know. It talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Can you imagine God really saying, don't bother hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you'll get that later? You know, don't be angry with your brother. Is it okay to be angry with your brother right now because we know you can't do everything, right? You're a busy person. To me, the discussion about who the Sermon on the Mount is presented to falls into not a bunch of different categories, but just two categories. Does it apply to me or does it apply to somebody else? And just to let you know, I am not going to let you off the hook as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I sit here and I struggle with each and every single verse of this sermon. And yet I still acknowledge that it is written for you and me today. However imperfectly we reach it 
since we still have the remnant of our sin nature, and there will come a time when all of that is washed away, we are called to live a lifestyle that is radically different than the life of the world. Jesus is coming to present the kingdom of heaven. But you see, we aren't living in some neutral territory. We're living in a different kingdom. The kingdom of this world, whose Lord is the same devil, the same Satan, who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And all he wanted from Jesus was a single act, apart from the will of the Father, and he would have Jesus where he wanted him. So the question that we have is what does the kingdom of this world teach us? And what does the kingdom of heaven teach us? And which kingdom are we in? And that's what we're going to talk about as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Every piece of it, in my opinion, is a radical departure from what you and I are used to. That's good. That scares a lot of people. It scares the bejeebers out of me. Okay? That doesn't mean there's a problem with the Scripture. It means there's a problem with me. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are known as the Beatitudes. Somewhere in there you get blessed in Latin and you get Beatitude, okay? That's the connection. These are known as the Beatitudes. It is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the introduction of the characteristics that God expects of us in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if I were to sit you down and give you a piece of paper and ask you to write out the list of characteristics that you would like to see in your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, we would have some interesting ideas on this list. We want them to be happy. We want them to be responsible. We want them to work hard. We want them to... You keep working your way down the list. That's what we would ask for our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. But when God sets out the characteristics that he wants to see in his children, he begins with, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I dare say that you could go out on the street today and ask people what they wanted to see in their children, and you could ask 10,000 of them and never once get poor in spirit. You just wouldn't get it. It makes absolutely no sense to those living in the kingdom of this world that Jesus would begin his sermon with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now we're going to jump in right now and answer one other question, in case you have it in your mind. There is a similar passage in the book of Luke, its version of the Sermon on the Mount, except for the fact it was on a plane, and except for the fact that the words are different. And scholars have spent a lot of time figuring out how to merge these two together, because they obviously appear to be the same sermon, they're just different. And in the Luke version, it says, blessed are the poor. And it stops right there. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So is the Luke passage teaching us that it's a good thing to be poor? Or is the Luke passage simply the Matthew passage with a few words accidentally left out? Well, we know that Jesus frequently talks about physical things when he's talking about spiritual realities. Remember in the book of John, he spends all kinds of time talking about being blind. He even has a blind guy, and he heals the blind guy. And then he starts talking about being blind, but he's not talking about being physically blind. He's talking about being spiritually blind. So in the same way, in the book of Luke... When he talks about blessed are the poor, he probably is not talking about physical poverty. He is talking about spiritual poverty. In the book of Matthew, that is brought home by the insertion of the phrase, poor in spirit. Now, once again, you read lots of commentaries and they work very hard at figuring out how these two sermons fit together. This is my opinion. This is my opinion. You hear this? It's my opinion. I never really saw much need to struggle to get them to match. You know, I have to assume that Jesus was preaching a lot. Okay? It wasn't like I sat down on the radio or I made a video and I put it as a podcast and everybody could listen to it. So I'm going to preach today to y'all, and tomorrow I'm going to preach to this group over here, and the next day I preach to this group, and the fact that the sermons sound alike, wouldn't you kind of expect that? Wouldn't that be normal? That's my opinion. I don't lose a lot of sleep over whether this one and the one in Luke match or don't match. Now, one thing you have to understand they don't ever contradict each other. Okay? No teaching of Christ contradicts any other teaching of Christ. Now, some of them may be difficult to understand. I'll acknowledge that. But we accept the fact that the Scripture, in its entirety, is the inspired Word of God. 
And there are no true contradictions in the Bible. Now, there are things that are difficult to understand. Okay? Even the other apostles said Paul's stuff is really hard to understand at times. Okay? We can acknowledge that without falling into the trap of thinking that they're contradicting each other. So there may be an occasion, as we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, that we do look at the Luke passage, or we look at the other teachings of Jesus, because all of them play together to present to us the teaching that Jesus would have us to understand. So, blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's start with blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Come on. Happy. Fortunate. This is a form that is very common throughout the scripture. In fact, you know, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 1, begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Throughout the scripture we see blessings, and we see curses. We're going to see both of those in the book of of Matthew. We're going to see blessings, and we're going to see some bad stuff aimed toward the Pharisees much later in the book. Blessing means the usual translation, the easy translation, is the word happy. But that only makes sense if we take a more classical view of the definition of the word happy. Today, we go up and say, are you happy? That means you had a good meal. You know, you slept well last night, you watched a good movie, you read a good book, and you're happy because your external circumstances are in a good situation right now. Okay? This morning around my house, we were not happy. (laughs) My son went shooting yesterday, had the guns in his trunk of his car. The guns are no longer in the trunk of his car. Somebody opened all the car doors of all of our cars, but, hmm, we were not happy because external circumstances were not going our way. That's what we mean today when we use the word happy. And if you use the word happy in that context, none of this makes sense. Happy are you when you are persecuted? Nope, isn't going to work. We'll get to that one in just a moment. (laughs) But a more classical definition of the word happiness is that life that is well-lived, that is blessed, using the word right here, has God's favor, and it is a life, not today, things are going my way. What does the, let's see, life, liberty, and what? of happiness. And today, a lot of people take that word happiness to mean, well, I should be able to pursue all the entertainment that I want. You know, all the sexual freedom that I want. Isn't that being happy? No. Because it's not a life well lived. 
Happy is the man, happy is the woman who lives a life in keeping with God and his word. That's what the psalmist said. So what does it take to make you happy? How much money do you have to have in the bank? How many good things do you have to have happening in your life? Once again, we take a very narrow, shallow view of what it means to be blessed. You know, I get in my car and I get to work and there wasn't much traffic. Gosh, I was blessed. We always think temporal rather than eternal. That's what we're focused on. I will tell you right now, none of this will make sense if you're looking at the here and now. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you want to be poor? (laughs) Don't answer that question. What is the line out of Fiddler on the Roof? God must have really loved poor people because he made so many of them. And then the response of, it's no dishonor to be poor. Yeah, but it's no great honor either. (laughs) If I'm giving you the characteristics that I want to see in my children, the first thing that I start with is not the lack of something. Poverty means there is something and I don't have it. I can be poor in money. I do have eight children. It does kind of make sense. <laughs> I can be poor in food. We haven't been to the grocery store. There's no food in the house. I can be poor in a lot of things if there's something and I don't have it. Whatever it is, if I need it or at least think that I need it and I don't have it, I'm going to tell you that I'm poor in whatever that thing is. And when we're looking at our children, we don't want them to be poor. We want them to have an abundance. We want them to have a lot of whatever it is. Happiness, joy, money, things, friends, relationships. Some of those are good. Some of them are, mm, what? Okay. But we want them to have an abundance. Doesn't God want us to have an abundance? What does he say in John? I would that you would have life and that you would have it abundantly. Huh. Sounds like a contradiction to me. Let's just shut it up and go home. What does it take to enter the kingdom of heaven? Let me tell you the problem, okay? Let me just tell you the problem in a nutshell. You ready for this? God created you, well, God created your ancestors in a garden, and they were perfect. God looked at them and said, it is good. And those ancestors 
met the same Satan that tempted Jesus. But unlike Jesus, they did not depend on God and his word. They depended upon themselves and they followed the temptation and they ate of the fruit and they sinned and sin entered the world. And since that day, you and I and every human being that ever lived, with the exception of Jesus, we talked about that several weeks ago, have been born with a propensity to sin. Not only do we enjoy it, we look forward to doing it, we do it regularly with great vigor. Because... We were born sinners. But there's a problem. A sinful human being cannot enter the presence of God. They just can't. Oh, we're messed up. You're right. And guess what? We knew it. I believe from the very beginning, we knew we were messed up. So from the very beginning, humanity has attempted to work their way back to Eden. There's got to be some way, somehow, of doing something that will get me back to a right standing with God. Every religion ever created from Greek God, Norse gods, Eastern this, Western that, every one of them is an attempt by human beings to get themselves back to where they know they're not now. That's where it all comes from. If you want to look at the history of religions, that's where they're all going. And I will sit here and I will concoct in my mind a set of things that if I do them, I hope maybe I'll get back to that relationship with God that I know that I don't have. How do we normally do this? We start putting together lists. Okay? If I worship this way, we're going to worship something if I worship this way. If I do these pious acts, if I deny myself certain things, if I give myself to certain things, if I do all of these things, I will work my way back to God. And God says, go ahead, try. But there's a problem. We're sinners and we cannot enter the presence of a holy God. And then here comes Jesus, the nerve of him. He sits there and he ends this chapter with, Be ye perfect. In the middle of the chapter, he starts talking about the Pharisees, the most righteous people that were around. This mob of people, this crowd of people that he's talking to. To them, the Pharisees were the most righteous people on the planet. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to make it. And they're going, shoot, we're doomed. 
all of humanity has been beating their heads against a rock from the beginning of time, trying to figure out how to get back to God. And you go, wait a minute, people aren't looking for God. No, they're not looking for God, but they're looking for what they're, they, they lack, and they just don't know what that is. And they beat themselves, and they whip themselves, and they do magnificent things trying to get their way back. And at some point, they just sit down in the dust and they say, I can't do it. It cannot be done. It's not obtainable. And at that point, God says, you're right. Now, you are ready to enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who spiritually realize that they are bankrupt. They realize that they can apply themselves to every list, to every activity for the rest of their lives, and they're not going to do it, and they sit down in the dust and they say, God, I can't do it. And at that point, and only at that point, can they enter the kingdom of heaven. Brokenness. Brokenness. Humility. We're going to talk about humility at length when we get to meekness. But humility is definitely part of it. Because the flip side of humility is, what is it that keeps us from acknowledging that we can't do it? Our pride. We talked about Satan two weeks ago. What did Satan say? I will be like the Most High. What did Satan tell Adam and Eve? You shall be as gods if you eat that fruit. And since then, we have all taken the lie that we can do it on our own. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they can't do it. This is contrary to everything you hear in every self-help lecture or read in every self-help book that exists today. What is the number one thing they say? Believe in yourself and you will do great things. No. Believe in God and you will do great things. But regardless of what it takes to be a success in the world, all of that is worthless before God himself. Let me let you in on a little secret. We saw this repeatedly in the book of Romans. Repeatedly. God is going to save you in such a way that God gets every drop of credit, every piece of it. You will never enter heaven saying, I did it my way. God is going to save you in such a way that God gets all the credit 
And if you're not willing for God to get all the credit, back on the treadmill. Because you're going to go around and around and around and around and around and around and around. And then you'll die. Does that sound depressing? It is interesting to me as we work our way through these Beatitudes. You know, there are certain characteristics that we're going to see. And there's a blessing that comes out of that. But there's also a negative response to each of these things. I can plop myself down in the dust and say I can't do it. I can fall into what Anne Shirley in Anne of of Avonlea says, the depths of despair. And there's no hope there. The first beatitude is not the first beatitude by accident. God is going to tell you, Jesus is going to tell you, how to live a lifestyle of the kingdom. But before he does that, he's going to tell you that you can't get into the kingdom. Well, that doesn't make sense. Sure it makes sense. If he's the one that's going to bring you into the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of interesting when you talk about last week's lesson and several weeks ago when we talked about John the Baptist, and their message was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we had a discussion about there that seemed a little vague at the time about the fact that repentance itself is not a work that merits God's favor. It is a response to God working in your life. Because... When you're in poor in spirit, all you can do is sit in the dust and let God save you. Where do we see this in the scripture? To me, one of the best examples, you remember the two brothers and the father. The one brother says, give me my inheritance now. I want to go live my life. Tired of living around here. So the father gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he engages in wild living. Okay, he spends all of his money and he ends up working in a pig pen, literally, which isn't the best thing for a Jewish guy to be doing. And he sits there and he says to himself, it says he comes to his right thinking. My father's servants live better than this. And he works out this speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. I have no claim on anything that you have. Just let me be one of your servants. And he comes wandering back home. The father sees him and comes running toward him. He starts his wonderful sermon that I'm sure he's practiced over and over again. The father won't hear any of it. He doesn't care. The son finally acknowledged that he could not do it on his own. And the father came running to him. 
As long as we sit here and think that we can earn our salvation the good old-fashioned way, we're not going to make it. Now, let's make sure we understand. The Sermon on the Mount is going to tell us lots of things we need to do. Okay? Don't do that. Do this. The Scripture is going to tell us lots of things. Don't do this. Do this. Didn't I just say you don't? No. What I said is doing all of those things apart from the finished work of Christ is worthless. But as we enter the kingdom through faith, by grace, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God wants us, no, God empowers us to live the lifestyle of the kingdom. To me, it's fascinating. You start you know, looking around the scripture and you talk about the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. What is the fruit? Fruit of the spirit. That means the spirit brings that alive in you. But elsewhere in the scripture, it does tell us to pursue love. It commands us to love one another. Okay, which is it? Is it a fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit works out in my life, or is it something that I pursue? And the answer is yes. As long as we think we can do it on our own, we're toast. But the moment we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life, everything in this sermon we can do. We'll have more about that in the weeks to come. But we're running out of time. So if you would, turn to chapter 7, the very end of it. Verse 24. What does Jesus expect us to do with every word that is in this sermon? We may come back to this passage several times in the upcoming weeks just to continue to remind ourselves Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. He's talking to an audience. Everyone here has heard my words. That's half of the equation. Everyone who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. What he tells us at the end of the sermon is simply this. You all are without excuse. Okay? Every one of you has heard at least verse 3 of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we read all the Beatitudes. Every one of you has heard it. The question is, what are you going to do about it? It was interesting. I was reading a um, study this week by Oswald Chambers about the Sermon on the Mount. I had never read it before. I don't know if you know who Oswald Chambers was. He was uh, he's best known for his uh, devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. And 
he died very young. He died in World War I. He was working with the troops. He was not a soldier, but he was working with the troops in Egypt. And the reality is he didn't really write anything. But his wife, who was a trained stenographer, recorded everything that he said at every meeting. And those became the books that we know of by Oswald Chambers. And he had a study on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, we learn twice. We hear the word. And at some point in life, God says, that word you heard back there, this is where it applies. Do it. And at that point, we either do it or we don't. And if we don't, we haven't learned it. The person who hears the word and puts it into practice is the person who has built his house on a firm foundation. And when the storms come, not if, not maybe, all of us are old enough to know the storms are going to come. Okay? Anybody want to argue that point? (laughs) The storms are going to come. And the house that is built on the firm foundation will stand, and the house that is built on sand will be washed away. That's the option. Hear it? Both of them heard it. Do it or don't do it. We'll have more to say about that later. But what's the final verse of chapter 7? Two verses. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You ever talk to somebody who you know knows what they're talking about? Or conversely, have you ever talked to somebody who you know doesn't have a clue what they're talking about? He said every day. Jesus is, not was, is and forever will be the Son of God. Jesus was, is, the force, the power, the person who created the world as we know it. If there is anyone in all of creation who has the authority to describe to you and me how we ought to live our lives, don't you think It would be the person who created it. I believe the crowd listening to this knew that. Remember, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, we fell, and all of humanity has been spent trying to get back to where we know we ought to be. And I imagine, this is my imagination, The disciples, the crowd, and there were some in that crowd that go, wow, this is it. This is what we have been looking for all of our lives. The voice of authority telling us how we ought to live our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What I would really like from you is if you are not a believer I would love you for you to be miserable (laughs) 
Because as long as your pride tells you, I can do it, I have a chance, there's a way to do it, oh, give me one more shot, another hundred bucks, another job, another wife, another husband, another something, another, another, another church, another Bible study, whatever it is, as long as your pride tells you just one more, you're going to keep looking for one more. But the moment you say, I cannot do it, God says, I've been telling you that all along. Here's the door. Come on in. And we're going to see later in the Sermon on the Mount that that's a narrow door. And few find it. Why? I just so want to earn it myself. I just, I mean, I really do. We sit there and we think, why don't people respond to the gospel? It is the good news. Because, as Jesus says about the Pharisees, we are like our father Satan. We will do it on our own, or we're not going to do it. Yes, Tom. Yep. The moment you recognized you had nothing to offer God. Come on, God. Totally dependent upon him. Come on, God. I've got a quarter. You think, wait, a quarter, that's pretty stupid. But to God, why is a quarter any different than a billion dollars? A trillion dollars. He doesn't need your trillion any more than he needs your quarter. But that's the way our minds think. If only, if only, if only. The promise of the kingdom of heaven is that the only people who are getting in are the ones who know they can't get in. And that's who the door opens for. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the word that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us through this week to acknowledge that you do it all for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.